When did the word art even come into being? And it became clear after these conversations, indigenous tribe never had a word for art because it was the way they lived. It was their culture, singing, dancing, graphics to tell stories in caves. It was absolutely just the way they lived. And we lost that along the way. It's been with us forever, yet as we've made it a nice to have, not a have to have, we've actually separated it from our being. And that's really unfortunate because it is what makes us human. Welcome to Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara. I'm your host, Dr. Tara, and I've been actively reinventing myself since I discovered the power of neuroplasticity. I have transformed myself personally, professionally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm here to show you that no matter your age or mindset, you can do it too. And because we're all about reinvention, season two is going to be quite different to season one. The episodes will be released weekly, and we've listened to your feedback and decided to go ad-free. There's a strong theme of ancient wisdom, which made me realize that the things we need to flourish in life, love, health, and work have been hiding in plain sight for millennia. I hope the season is as impactful for you as it is for me. In this episode, we'll be talking to two researchers and authors about how the arts transform us in extraordinary ways. My first guest is the Vice President of Design for the Hardware Product Area at Google, where she leads a team that has won over 225 design awards. She's a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts Grant for her innovative metalwork with jewellery, and was voted number nine of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company. My second guest is the founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab, Centre for Applied Neuroaesthetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she is a faculty member. She is also co-director of the NeuroArts Blueprint, advancing the science of arts, health and well-being. Together, they have co-authored a book, Your Brain on Art, which shows us how the science of neuroaesthetics has the power to transform traditional medicine and build healthier communities. Please welcome Ivy Ross and Susan Magsamen. Hello, Susan and Ivy, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm, I'm just so grateful that we have a mutual friend. And so I got to have you because your book, everyone in London's talking about it. And um, I was very, very flattered that you're available. Um, we'll get to the book, which is called Your Brain on Art, which I have read and it's amazing. I've already recommended it to so many people around the world, but I'm sure after this podcast comes out, more people will go and buy it. Um, but could you please tell us a bit about yourselves and the story of how you came to write that book together? Sure. Well, this is Susan, and um, I am at Johns Hopkins University. I run something called the International Arts and Mind Lab Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics, which is part of the School of Medicine. And about, I guess, seven years ago, we started a program called the Luminary Scholars Program. Our work is highly translational, highly interdisciplinary. We're really interested in how do we understand how arts and aesthetic experiences change our brains and bodies and how that can be translated into practices in physical health, mental well-being, in learning, in kind of anywhere we are as humans and we show up. How does this work amplify us? And we had decided to start something called the Luminary Advisory Board to really 
lift up people that were already doing amazing things at the intersection of art and aesthetics and design. And so uh, I had remembered Ivy uh, when she was at Mattel. And I had had a company called Curiosity Kids and, uh, and and then another one that I sold to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And at, around that same time, Ivy was working, um, in, at Mattel in the, in the girls division. And I just remember thinking, you know, just what a creative being and how the way she approached this work was just beautiful. So I blindly linked her in, um, and, uh, said, this is what I do. And I'd love to talk to you about how um, science of the arts is really starting to catch up with, you know, the way designers and artists are thinking. And I, I uh, as I like to say, I get about 500 LinkedIn invites <clears throat> and I see the one from uh, Susan. So I swiped right. And it's like the arts and mind lab. I mean, that's everything I care yeah. about, art and the brain. Yeah. And so I said, yes. And we uh, set up a 30-minute call that turned into a three-hour call. She kept saying, can you cancel your next meeting? And I'd say yes. And I said, can you cancel your next? And it just went on. And then she flew up to Mill Valley, where I live in San Francisco, and we created a salon between artists and scientists. I like to say it was like Noah's Ark in that we curated two dancers, two painters, two um, actors, and we had this amazing dialogue. And at the end of it, um, Susan looked at me and said, I've always wanted to write a book about this. Do you want to do it with me? Mm. And I said, this is the book I've been waiting for yeah. because my career has been very much, I started as an artist. My work is in 12 museums around the world. And I, I worked, you know, with myself in the studio, which I'm so grateful of the connection between the hand and the mind making things. But it was lonely and I was really, and I won all these design awards and people asked me to write books on creativity. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> that's what I do every day. I'm not interested in that. And, um, and I went on to, from there, uh, run creative departments in many different companies and currently at Google. Um, but when Susan told me about what she was thinking, I was like, absolutely. Now I know why I haven't written a book before, yeah. because this is the one I've been waiting for. Someone, um, Professor Susan Baroness-Greenfield, who is my mentor at Oxford, she said to me, because I said, I said the same, people keep saying I should write a book and I, I don't know how I feel about that. And she said, one day, Tara, you will wake up and there will be a book that you have no choice but to write. Only write a book then. Mm. It was really great advice. I was very mm. lucky. Um, I, lo I love I love that. Well, I think books have to be a learning journey for yourself as well, yeah. right? Which this one was. And it continues to be that. Yeah, we call it a love letter. Oh. It's it is a, it is a total love letter yeah. and 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 you know, we, I would get up at 4 in the morning east coast and I would work till 8. Ivy would get up, you know, same thing on the west coast and then we would intersect and and you know, we just it was just like this you know, sleepless in Seattle kind of yeah. a story where I was working on this and she was working on that. And we'd come together and we would collaborate and um and we you know, we interviewed over a hundred and twenty people. Um so the book is super rich and full. Mm. And as Ivy said, it's really it has been a learning journey from scientists to, you know, world famous artists, people that have lived experience with all kinds of uh issues corporate leaders. It's, it's really, it's really cuts across all the things that we know and, and all the things that we do as community, but also as individuals. 
Yeah, and I just want to make it clear at this point, because I love the title of the book. I also love that book, This Is Your Brain on Music. Um, but I just want to make it clear to people that it is about art in all forms. It's about beauty. It's about nature. It's about music, dance, everything. So um, I think a, a great place to start would be to talk about why nature is the palette that appeals to all of our brains, even though we may have different taste in art or music, or, you know, we may just prefer a different creative pursuit. Um, I think since the pandemic that nature has kind of loomed larger as how important it is to our mental health, our longevity, um, and not just our health in general. So would one of you like to speak about that? Yeah, I could start. Um, and Susan can add, you know, we interviewed E.O. Wilson, who reminded us that 98.8% of the time we humans have been on this planet, we've actually lived in nature. And it's only been the last 0.2%, so to speak, of our time here that we've been in the built environment. So the truth is, it is our nature to be in nature. And nature is the most neuroaesthetic place there is. And Susan could talk maybe a little bit about what neuroaesthetics actually is, mm -hmm. but it, it is about livening your sensory systems. And so nature has scent, sound, smell, color. Every one of our um, senses are alivened in nature. You know, um, it's interesting when you're talking about um, your brain on music, Dan Levitin's book, Dan's in the book, in our book too. So, and he's a yeah. good friend and that's a fabulous yeah. book. Um, you know, we define art in, that I think is worth stating is creative expression. Okay. And so any art form, um, any way that we express ourselves, really we consider that. And we talk about arts and aesthetics and that's where nature, I think, really comes into play. Um, Anjan Chatterjee is a neurologist at University of Penn and does a lot of work in, in neuroaesthetics. And he shared something with us that I think is under, worth underscoring that humans uh, all over the planet, uh, when we see landscapes or uh, nature settings, we all have the same physiological responses to those experiences. Like we think certain landscapes are more beautiful than mm -hmm. others. We think certain terrains, we, we, we relate to sunrises, sunsets, rainbows, um, stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. We see awe in nature. Yeah. And we also relate to the human face and, and the way that we smile or cry or express emotion. What we don't agree on is uh, human-made expression. Mm -hmm. And that often is cultural. It can be um, based on lived experience or childhood experiences. And so, but what we do agree on is, is this comfort of all the different emotional states that nature brings us. And at a very basic level, we know that just 20 minutes in nature lowers cortisol yeah. and um, allows us to be more focused and more mm -hmm. present and, and, and also releases an opportunity for lowering cognitive load, which during COVID, that was something that we all were looking yeah. for. But I think we're all needing it in the complexity of the world now as much as ever. If not more than ever, I mean, as a former psychiatrist, I feel that the long-term mental health consequences of the pandemic and then, of course, the cost of living crisis and, you know, potential war zones around the world has, you know, has taken a much bigger toll on our mental health than, than we yet appreciate. So could you speak a little bit about 
neuroaesthetics as it applies to mental well-being? Sure, maybe I'll 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 start and Ivy can jump in. Um, so we you know we have done a fair amount of work in thinking about how to even um, frame the conversation around mental health, serious mental illness, um, well-being, mental well-being, um, and the implications of that for our day-to-day lives, but also um, in in sort of long-term and how that affects health and, and well-being. And we know that um, these basic practices of 20 minutes a day uh, of an arts practice, creating a behavior allows us to sort of um, engage uh, some of the neural pathways around uh, reward, um, lowering cortisol, engaging the parasympathetic nervous system, um, and being able to really uh, lower stress, manage anxiety, deal with things like um, impulse control, and uh, and uh, looking more to this idea of building resiliency. Mm-hmm. We also know that our experiences and creative experiences for young children build strong neural pathways. And neural pathways are so critically important, new neural pathways, but also reinforcing positive pathways for connecting different parts Mm -hmm. of the brain, but also for learning and and for building resiliency. So uh, we talk about in the book, we, we organize the book around well-being and what practices to just manage stress and anxiety and sometimes sort of the twists and turns of life. But then we look at serious mental mm-hmm. illness or um, even things like trauma and PTSD mm-hmm. and the way the arts allow us to, to really unlock some of the things that are trapped inside us. Um, a good example is thinking about the Vraca region where when you are traumatized, your speech center can shut down, often does, you're speechless, you have yeah. no words. And creating visual arts can allow you to find symbol and metaphor mm. to put words to what you have not been able to express. And that really is a way of unlocking, for for example. Wow. Yeah, in fact, there's a there's a story in the book we talk about with a woman who started a group that was going to frontline firemen coming out of fires who were traumatized that would take this trauma home with them. Mm. But she gave them a paintbrush and a canvas and said, you know, start painting as soon as you get out of the fire. And they found that this one gentleman, we young fireman we interviewed, it was like he was just releasing every, the trauma that had just happened mm-hmm. and he could go home to his family and be 100%. So I think for everything from true big traumas like that to, as you say, right now, these little traumas that we've had as a society, we don't realize the impact they're having because it has been on every level, like you say, from covid to social unrest, to fires, to um, it's our bodies, and we don't realize what it's doing. So mm-hmm. this idea that we have to express ourselves and get all of this out um, is super important. And there's many different modalities. And you don't have to be, the great thing about the arts is you don't have to be good mm-hmm. at the art or proficient, I should say. Mm-hmm. And you know, many many of us were shut down as kids because we were told, that's not the way you draw a tree. That's not the way you, you know, you should be doing this. And, and so people stop doing it. And it's, it's really our birthright and we are wired to engage in the arts. 
You know, just to add to what Ivy's saying, because you're triggering a couple of things, the, this whole idea around, um, coping, um, and managing symptoms, um, you know, thinking that the goal in, um, mental health is often to manage symptoms. But what we really want is to thrive and to flourish. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing that, um, the arts, um, and these all inspiring experiences allow us to build the muscle for thriving and mm -hmm. flourishing and really maximizing our potential. So, especially in, in Western culture, I think sometimes we think of what's the baseline and it's, you know, how to make sure that you can sleep at night or you can, can maybe, you know, um, are dealing with some kind of short term, um, symptom relief. But I think one of the things that the, this, the arts and aesthetics offer is a much deeper, richer way to feel fully human. Um, and we do work quite a bit with healthcare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, using uh, a number of people that talk about music and visual arts as ways to help them adhere to some of the other kinds of interventions than maybe pharmacological mm -hmm. or other kinds of uh, OTPT, but using the arts in combination with other things. So I think, I mean, I never think of this as a, a this or that, mm. but a kind of a yes mm -hmm. and to the way to bring the arts forward for mental health. Yeah. And just in terms of checking the definition of neuroaesthetics and in very practical terms for the listeners to think about things that they could do. Is it both expression and experience? So, for example, you mentioned flourishing. When I was reading that chapter, there's a really breathtakingly beautiful poem about a goldfish at the start of that chapter. And just the pleasure that I got from from that was different to reading the book because it felt like a you know, like a, a like an aesthetic experience for me to read that poem and feel the emotions that came up about it. So do people have to actually go and paint or dance or sing, or can they go to an art gallery or read poetry? Um, how would you say those two things compare to each other in terms of accessing neuroaesthetics for your mental health? So it's it's both. Okay. It's making and both holding. And I think we'd all do that anyway. We are always making in some way and we're always beholding. And the line blurs between mm -hmm. that. Um, so you know, there are benefits when you're a maker and a beholder from a neurobiological, psychological, behavioral perspective. When you're the maker, mm -hmm. makers, um, I think what's so amazing about making anything, and as Ivy said, whether you're proficient at it or not, is nobody can tell you what to make. There's total agency, mm -hmm. total freedom, total self-expression, and it's your relationship with yourself about what you're bringing forward in any form you choose mm -hmm. and how it helps you find meaning, but how also it might help you share complexity and deep emotion with with the other, whoever the other mm -hmm. is, and you know, whether that's a relationship or a group. Mm -hmm. As a as a beholder, you um are are able to synchronize with others, which is really mm -hmm. important. Uh, we, we 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 travel together. We're you social. We need each other, and and when we work together, we lighten the load. It also increases empathy and also perspective taking. So you have this opportunity when you're reading the poem to go, ah, yeah, I can feel what it feels like to be a goldfish. I that's a metaphor I can mm. relate to. I know my space is too small, right? What would it mean if I had a bigger container? And you know, we're empathizing with a fish <laughs> in that story. And I that's a beautiful mm. poem. I I love yeah. that poem. Um and and but other other narratives, uh fiction, um mm -hmm. offer that opportunity for us to be perspective taking and also 
trying on something in a different way. And so, um, and different art forms offer different kinds of perspective taking. Um, we've had people say to us, I fell into the painting and I was mm. taken away. I went to another place. And that's just so beautiful mm. to think that a painting could give you respite and adventure. Um, and then you could come back and you, you're, you're forever changed, right? You're neurobiologically forever changed by falling into a painting. Mm. So, um, so those are sort of the differences that we think about. Yeah, and I think we're all talk about falling into a painting. And by the way, actually, doctors in London and Canada seem to be prescribing going to museums for patients, which is amazing. But I think some of it is our, whether it's conscious or unconscious thirst for getting out of our cognitive mind and into our body. And that's mm -hmm. what, you know, when you're swept away by a painting, um, because we've been, you know, optimizing for productivity and efficiency for so long, I think we have almost forgotten that we're embodied beings with sensory systems. Mm -hmm. And so some of these awe-inspiring art experiences or going into the flow state when you read a poem is literally giving your brain a break <laughs> and go and making new, incredibly important new connections, both in your brain and body. Well, I actually have a really personal story about that, which is that when I was writing up my PhD, I was basically staring at a screen and, you know, writing and looking at papers just all day, every day for a long time. And one of my best friends said, okay, you know, you need a break and you need to just do something different that will like allow you to return to that feeling refreshed. So she said, would you like to go and see a movie? And I said, no, no, I don't, I don't want to look at another screen. She said, okay, we could go to the park and sit in the sunshine and look at some fun magazines. And I said, no, no, I don't want to read anything because I'm just reading all day. So she thought about it. And she said, okay, would you like to go to an art gallery? And so we did that. And the effect that it had on me was literally life-changing. I mean, I'll connect that up to another story, which is I am one of those people that was told in my teens that I wasn't creative because I wasn't good at art. And I fully believed that for at least 20 years. I, I had a best-selling book came out and still kept saying I'm not a writer. Um, so I'm still working on believing that I'm a, a fully creative person and this podcast has been a huge part of that. Um, but my appreciation of art because of that life-changing epiphany moment is definitely feels different to, I do now like draw and paint and, you know, do pottery and things like that. But for me, just being surrounded by art, having it in my home, being in a gallery is, is just like such an incredible experience for my brain. And so I guess it's, you know, people will find their thing, right? It will be different things for different people. Absolutely. That's the great thing is there's such a vast um, menu of possibilities. Mm. We, we know um, someone that wrote to us that said they now have art date night where they, <laughs> uh, with another couple, they have dinner together and then they go to each other's homes and it's the job of the other person to say, well, let's do watercolor tonight. Oh, wow. And because sometimes you don't, you don't even know what is going to make you happy and put you in that state. But I love your story. Um, and I love that you reconnected with having the arts around you mm -hmm. and, and being a maker. Thank you. You also talk about this idea of reinvention mm -hmm. and the mind body connection and, and, I was telling Tara that I had been listening to some of her other podcasts and, um, and that I think lifting up this idea of we recreate ourselves, mm -hmm. we reinvent ourselves mm -hmm. and that this, 
this work is certainly neural, but it's also so cellular mm -hmm. across the entire body. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, and so this, this brain state affects circulation and respiration, it, you know, all of those motor systems, um, and even keeping our endocrine and immune systems mm. healthy. And that's, that's amazing. You know, it, the prevention and protection aspects of the arts are so, um, extraordinary and we're only at the beginning of really understanding what this kind of work does for igniting the sensory systems and helping us really stay healthy, yeah. um, you know, upstream so that downstream we're not looking at all of the kinds of um, really lifestyle diseases and disorders. Mm. And that when you hold this and you don't let it go happen to yeah, us. Absolutely. I mean, could you speak, one of you speak to this idea of the inner script that you introduced after the poem about flourishing? Because you know, I've just told a story of having an inner script for 20 years of believing that I'm not creative. Um, and that affected so many decisions in my life. What would you want people to understand to be able to change their inner script? Well, you know, you dig, you dig these neural pathways deeper and deeper when you tell yourself the same story over and over again. Mm. And, and, and so I think what I'd want people to understand is that it's the easier place to go because the pathway is already cut uh, and you know that. But by exposing it to get out of it that, you have to have new experiences and try new things and try on creating a different story mm. um, about yourself, which means putting yourself in different situations and trying new things. Mm. Great. I love that. I had an interview with someone who... Uh, it was a really interesting interview because he said, um, I, I don't like art. I don't like to do art. Why would I do it if I don't like it? And I said, well, what don't you like about me? He goes, well, it's embarrassing to begin with. And, and he said, and I'm not good at it. And I said, well, how about dancing? And he goes, oh, I would never dance. <laughs> and so I, so it was just the two of us. Ivy wasn't on this one. So I said, do me a favor, stand up and just shake your body. You Nobody's looking at you, just stand up and shake your body. And he did, and and we weren't even on screen, we were just, you know, listening to each other. And he was like, he laughed, and he was like, that feels really good. And I said, Joe, you don't have to do that with other people, you can do it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a message is that, you know, we all want to, safety is not just the absence of threat, it's feeling like you can express mm -hmm. yourself. And so find a safe space where you can express yourself without feeling like you're going to be exposed. And you may ultimately or vulnerable to the point where you, you know, inhibit yourself, but find ways that you can express yourself in a safe way mm. and see how that feels. Because mm. I think when you feel it, you never go back, mm. right? You never, because it feels so good. Mm. Um, whatever it is, it feels so good. So fascinating so far, just like so many nuggets in there for people. And uh um, in season two of the podcast, although it's still about reinvention, as you've mentioned, that we're also um, digging into the theme of how Indigenous wisdom can help with modern health and mental health struggles for people. So I'd love to start by asking you how art was used in ancient cultures. Maybe you could n name a few different cultures and how art was used, what the themes were. Yeah. Well, sure. You know, in the book, we interviewed um, a Hopi Indian and a Maori tribesman, because we were really interested in, so when did the word art even come into being? And it became clear after these conversations, they never 
indigenous tribe never had a word for art because it was the way they lived. It was their culture, singing, dancing, graphics to tell stories in caves. Um, it was absolutely just the way they lived. Mm -hmm. And we lost that along the way. And I think in part, you know, we created this word called art and it became more of an elitist in some cases, mm -hmm. things that you, that it became a commercial market versus actually a birthright. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, that when you think about that, because it's, it's been with us forever, yet as we've t made it a nice to have, not a have to have, we've actually separated it from our being. And that's really unfortunate because it is what makes us human. In what ways specifically, let's say, for example, with the first Americans, what, what did you find, how did they use art in a way that you feel was integral to their well-being? Well, it's woven into everything that they do. So all of the rituals and traditions um, are really built around these uh, self-expressions. Um, Ivy mentioned the Hopi uh, group that, that we met with and the the totems that they create mm. that represent their religions, mm -hmm. the use of corn. Corn shows up in every single part of their lives because it's the, it's what keeps had kept the Hopi mm. alive. And so they honor corn in all of these different stages. So, and food is also, you know, an art. Mm. So all the different ways that food is made and created and celebrated that ties into nature and season, mm. um, which makes perfect sense, right? Because that's, we're so dependent on nature. And even now we're so dependent on weather and nature. Mm. And so I think we've also gotten away from that and we're seeing that now as it comes back. But every single aspect of early childhood, of moving through um, stages into adulthood, ceremonies around um, marriage and relationship and moving forward in community, uh, celebrations of birth. And that was also true in the Maori community, mm -hmm. very, you know, celebrating those moments um, that are so important for all of us, but weaving in this expression of, of self and community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, making things, I mean, in the storytelling, the making of masks, the, the dances, um, it was really multi-dimensional in terms of naturally using all the arts to connect with each other, the storytelling around the fire. Um, you know, that is embedded in us. Yeah, I'm just thinking like, you know, from my culture, which is Indian, and I think it would be both in the Maori culture and um, the first Americans, is adorning yourself. Uh, and that's, you know, not just for women, it's for men as well. So, you know, braiding your hair, wearing jewellery, um, putting flowers in your your hair or feathers or whatever. Um, yeah, that's something that I feel was just, it was very much what everyone did. And something about modern society has also kind of said, don't stand out, don't look too different, don't overdo like how much you adorn yourself. Um, you know, in my culture, it would be that every person should feel like, you know, like a goddess. And so therefore, of course, you would adorn yourself. Um, so yeah, no, I, I can really get the sense of that, the texture and just the rituals and everything and how, how beautiful those are and how much they absolutely do contribute to your well-being and you know my thing is absolutely cooking but I was at my happiest when locked down because I had my greenhouse and my compost heap and I I you know I chose what we ate that day depending on what we had um 
And I didn't feel restricted. I actually liked that, that I was living in like set the cycle with nature. Um, yeah. Well, two things, two things when you talk about adorning ourselves, I mean, that is pure aesthetics, like appreciation of the beauty of, like you said, the richness of color, texture. I mean, I agree that that was self-expression at its fullest, you know, giving mm -hmm. ourselves permission uh, to be that way. And the other thing is, you know, with COVID, I do think Mother Nature sent us to our rooms. She said, okay, you go to your rooms and you think about what you've been doing, <laughs> you know, these last 50 years and don't come out till you have, you're better in touch with yourself. And it gave all of us an opportunity to um, go inward mm -hmm. a little bit mm -hmm. and explore and um, connect with our families again or uh, you know, Susan and I, this book would not have been written if it wasn't for COVID because <laughs> I didn't have to commute. I didn't have to commute to work two hours e each way. So it was the, in the morning, you know, from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Instead of being on the road, I would work with Susan on the book and yeah. then be able to work for Google from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Yeah. So it, in some ways, um, you know, and this doesn't take away from those who suffered or passed in COVID, but it's interesting. I feel like it gave us the time to reconnect to ourselves mm. and what's important. Um, and I've seen people start to bake bread was a big thing. Mm. Garden. I mean, all of these arts that we've lost became back into our lives out of necessity. I, I'm not particularly into baking, but I do remember emailing the professor that I teach with at MIT and saying, how many more recipes with just potatoes and root vegetables can can you come up with? Because that's all I'm getting in my box. <laughs> but then on the other hand, I taught myself to play the piano keyboard with the Floki app. So, you know, it's kind of good and bad things. I think you mentioned earlier this idea of coming out of COVID, there's more mental health issues. And I think mm -hmm. one thing that we did lose was social fabric, mm. uh, for better or worse, right? What mm. was considered social fabric. And I think right now is a real opportunity to reweave the fabric mm. that we want based on the wisdom that mm -hmm. we gained in COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think, and for some communities um, who had already been stripped of their culture and have really been um, laid bare um, by being cut off by redlining in the United States or by discrimination or by racial injustice or in mm -hmm. poverty or um, communities that were so under-resourced, those communities already were really struggling before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we address some of that in the book in mm -hmm. really thinking about how do you build culture when your culture has been taken literally from you. So there isn't an intergenerational um, passing it down. That was the other thing we learned about the indigenous cultures is mm -hmm. it's so important to pass it down from culture, from, from generation to generation, from sister yeah. to sister, from mother to son. Yeah. And when you lost that, because it's been systemically taken from you, yeah. how do you build that back? Yeah. Um, and we were able to speak to Maria Rosario Jackson, who is now the head of the National Endowments for the Arts in, in the United States. And she's really all about creative placemaking and, and culture bearers. And so she has something that she calls culture kitchens, where she's really su supporting and suggesting this idea of... Um, any culture, but often it's black and brown cultures um, in the United mm -hmm. States who have mm -hmm. been um, in need of 
just rebuilding our culture and doing it by experiment. So, you know, the great thing about creativity is it's a process, right? Arts making, making in general, cooking, you know, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. But what is it that, how do you recreate? How, what is the thing that you're going to adorn yourself with? What is the song you're going to sing? Mm-hmm. Can you pull back that ancient ancestral diaspora and bring it forward? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you find it when it feels like it's been lost? or maybe just really asleep for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the beautiful parts of the community chapter was thinking about how you rebuild and reclaim culture. I mean, we, and there's some great examples um, in the book that talk about that. And you know, art creates community and community creates culture. So it's so important. But in terms of racial trauma or intergenerational trauma in particular, what did you find in your research, what are things that people, I mean, and this is COVID aside, you know, this was before as well. How, how can neuroaesthetics be applied to addressing racial trauma that's been happening for generations, not something that's happened, let's say, you know, to a person in their lifetime? So we interviewed Resma Manikin, who is a somatic sensory uh, healer. And he is an extraordinarily gifted um, person who uh, works with the Black community primarily. And he talked with us about the fact that in his therapeutic practice, um, it includes things like humming and rocking and shaking, dancing, people creating art, Mm. but really trying to play with this idea of loosening up what's stuck and intergenerationally stuck. Uh, and he also reminded us mm-hmm. that, um, you know, uh, s- s- slaves that were brought to this country survived because of these humming and singing and chanting and moving, that it was how they kept alive in the kind of atrocities that they were experiencing. And so, so mm-hmm. coming back to that and opening up that space, you know, the, one of the things about trauma is the, the, this internal space gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So, and we learn to kind of cope until we break, right? Until something triggers us and we crack. And what he works on is playing this idea. Of, and he also does this beautiful work of mirroring what someone's doing. So maybe Ivy is talking to me and she's swaying. I start to sway with Ivy and I get in rhythm and synchrony with Ivy and I can feel where she's tight and I can help move that space. And so, you know, it's this practice of somatic getting in touch with your sensory systems and opening them up. And the more you open them, Mm -hmm. the more room you have to play, right? And then you can open them more and can move that through. And so it's energy work, right? At its best, it's moving. We are energy. We're energy in motion, emotion. Mm. And so that's really work that he's Mm. been doing. And particularly, he's been doing it with the Black community. And it's very powerful. And in combination with then taking it into the the greater community with what Maria's been doing. There's another person we met um, who I adore named Emmanuel Pratt, who started something called the Sweetwater Foundation. And his logo or his 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 uh, tagline is "There grows the neighborhood," and in the middle of the mm-hmm. South Side of Chicago, in a blighted community, they have twenty acres of lush farmland where they grow anything you can imagine, and they have 
they have beehives and they, 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 the community helps to work the garden and shares the garden. There's rituals and traditions. So going back to your primal use mm-hmm. of composting and what's in your garden, he's doing that seasonally. Mm-hmm. Um, they put up stuff, they learn to cook, they figure yeah. out what their traditions and rituals are that have also been s- stripped out of someplace like the South side of Chicago. And, you know, back to Susan talking about the movement. I mean, emotion is actually energy in motion. And so when we don't move that energy out, Mm. it gets stuck and we get sick. And so this idea that self-expression, no matter what avenue you choose, is really important to move um, through emotions. And drumming and dancing. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that there's something about that beat and everyone can, the entrainment effect of us kind of all being in sync as well. Absolutely. And we've, you know, I mean, soldiers marching, square dancing, there was some, Mm. there was something scientific to that. I mean, the merging that happens and the connection between people. So it's really important. You, you, you keep mentioning connection and community. And I think one of the biggest epidemics in the modern world is loneliness. Could you speak to, the impact of neuroaesthetics on loneliness. Well, Ivy and I had an opportunity to um, to uh, hear Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General in the United States, and he talks about loneliness and isolation being the biggest public health issue of our time. Wow. And he talks about it in the United States, but he thinks about it globally as well. And you know, loneliness is different than being alone. Mm-hmm. It's when you feel like you don't have any external connections that you're not seen and you're not understood. Mm -hmm. And so back to the conversation we had earlier about this idea of making and beholding, Mm -hmm. it's in those spaces where you really are able to connect to the other. And it can be a book, right? It can be a podcast where Mm -hmm. you're feeling it gets me, somebody understands me, somebody sees inside of me, yeah. um, uh, all the way to being, you know, in present, in person with people where you're you're actually activating um, those um, sensory systems. And so, and loneliness and isolation lead to physical health issues as mm. well. Mm. So things like sewing circles, knitting circles, we're seeing those show up in colleges and universities where you think, oh, you know, these why would these kids need that? But they are lonely because yeah. they spend a lot of time on social media and they also spend a lot of time um, not being able to engage. So these acts of coming together in groups turns out to be really important. And also there's some really interesting research that's happening now about our need to be able to help each other, to be in service of each other. And mm-hmm. so whether we're making a meal or making, I mean, we're making for others. And I think mm-hmm. that's another area that neuroaesthetics ties into. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that keeps coming up as well, you know, having a purpose that transcends yourself and the impact of that on your cognitive cognitive health and longevity. So it's lovely to hear you say that in a slightly different way about neuroaesthetics. Um, in terms of neuroaesthetics, how does the environment that we surround ourselves with affect the way that we feel? Well, greatly. I mean, first of all, architects in ancient times had to be philosophers and doctors because they had to really understand the person in the space, not just the space, and how the space would make the person feel. So actually in 2019, shortly after Susan and I connected, we um, did 
basically the first public experience of neuroaesthetics live in that we, um, it was Google's design studio and Suchi Reddy, um, an architect and Susan in her lab that collaborated to create something called a space for being. And this was at the Milan Design Fair, 400,000 people coming through. And we created three rooms. They were living room, dining rooms, but the three rooms, um, were everything about them neuroaesthetically was different. The height of the ceiling, the lighting, the colors, the textures. We even had custom scent, custom music. And each of the rooms were designed to be vastly different from each other, um, purposely ramped up so that your body would feel very different things. When people came to the exhibition, we gave them a band that um, we had designed that was had um, sensors in it that was taking parts of your physiology, you know, heart rate, body temperature, et cetera, that um, Google and Susan's lab had made an algorithm that said, if this, these set of um, data, your body would be the most at home or least stressed. Mm -hmm. So what would have to be true to get to, we, we'd be able to tell by the physiology intake in which room your body was the most at home or least stressed. So we asked people to spend about uh, 10 minutes in each room, um, no talking, no devices, no photography, just be, touch the art, you know, feel the music, just be in that space, which people said yeah. afterward was a gift in itself because um, this was an incredible, like, exhibit, uh, you know, 400,000 people. So just being instructed to do that. Anyway, people spent the time in each of the three rooms. At the end, we took the band off. There was a band tender who would uh, download the data. And of course, after we shared it, which I'll talk about in a minute, we deleted it. But at first we'd ask the person, well, which room did you like mm -hmm. the best? The first, the second, or the third? And someone would say, oh, the second one, because I love the color blue or whatever, the couch was blue. And then we would show them through data visualization exactly how their body was feeling in each of the three rooms. And over 58% of the time, which we had hoped for, it was a mismatch in that we were able to say, oh, but your body felt more oh. at ease in room number three. And they would be like, well, how could, how could that be? And we said, and this was the whole reason we did this little experiment was to show that your body is feeling all the time. Now, and, and we're not mm -hmm. often connected to how our body is feeling. We're more connected to our cognitive mind that will walk into a space and say, I love this couch because I saw it in a magazine or my friend has it or it's beautiful, but your body, your physiology may mm. be reacting differently to the environment. So it was really an exercise to, to in neuroaesthetics, which is how um, art and aesthetics, because there was art in, the, in each of the rooms as well, affects, mm. changes our brain and body. And that we really just wanted to bring an awareness uh, to that idea so that we can, we can um, be more aware of the connection and feel into mm. our bodies sometimes, not just and th see how our body is feeling. And, and, and really to say that we have agency over what we surround ourselves with, um, of what makes us feel good, if we can tap into uh, how our body is feeling about the fragrance of the flower we might put in a vase or the color we paint our walls or the art we choose. So it was, it was really... Um, it was interesting to watch people's surprise and delight 
about this concept that we are feeling all the time. And then, you know, you, it triggers all these things when you're aware of that, that you could be doing, um, to activate our sensory systems, which leads to better health and well-being. And you might not want to always feel at ease, right? So thinking more consciously about intention, like what is the intentional space that you're trying mm -hmm. to create? It might be more focus, right? It might be joy. It might be rest. It might be, um, you know, uh, some other kind of emotional state of mind. And so, but you have to feel your way through that. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. we're so influenced by external sort of rational thinking that we don't feel our way through. And if you pull back even more, in the 60s, there was a study done by uh, Marion Diamond, uh, who was a neuroscientist, did a lot of work in neuroplasticity. And she did work mm -hmm. with rats in enriched environments. And what she saw was in just two weeks in three different conditions, an enriched environment, kind of a basic status quo environment, and then an impoverished environment. Um, rats that had the enriched environments, mm -hmm. brains actually grew by 6% in just two weeks. And an enriched environment yeah. is something that has novelty mm -hmm. and surprise and is interesting. So it's, it's, it's different. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's not asking the, the rats not sort mm. of understanding, you know, where they're mm. most at ease, but really what's stimulating them. But the impoverished oh, wow. brain also got smaller. And so what we know is that space really matters. And those experiments have been done in other ways um, with humans now to really understand the power of environment. And, yeah. you know, virtual space is space too. So as we're moving into environments with experiential design or virtual reality, really understanding what are those those mind states that we're really trying to get to, I think is really That's, important. It's just really got me thinking about just, every, you know, everywhere that you spend time or the routine, you know, if you're in too much of a routine and it's just the same all the time, that your brain could, could actually shrink. It's not just that it grows if you stimulate it, it's the fact that it could shrink if you don't, I think is the biggest message I'm taking away from that. Um, there was a particularly interesting part to that story, which was, I think you had a, was it a Mexican lady that went through the three rooms? And one of the rooms was very vibrant and rich in colour and... Yeah, she was from South America and I, she grew up, uh, she started crying mm. when we told her which room her body responded to. And then she proceeded to, when we asked her why, tell us the story. Mm -hmm. And this is a good example of how culture plays into this. She grew up um, in a very poor family and her pure joy, the only time she was, or the time she was most joyful was when she was playing in this, in, with these very brightly colored toys and just by herself playing. And so when she first came to our experience, she said her cognitive mind was like, I don't deserve any of these rooms. They mm -hmm. are all so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was like above her ability to connect with them. And so that's the way her cognitive mind mm -hmm. walked through them. But when she saw her results, the room number two, which was designed to be more playful, more colorful, her body absolutely loved. And she broke into tears because she realized mm. what was happening is her body remembered her joy in that space without her mental mind judging anything. And so it was, it was so beautiful yeah. that she felt safe enough and shared that with, with us because it shows that our, the memories that our culture and our experience is held in our bodies. It ties back to what you were saying earlier about 20 years of not 
um, feeling like you could create mm-hmm. art. She spent her life avoiding those kinds mm-hmm. of spaces because she didn't think she deserved mm-hmm. them. And when she tapped into that, it, it gave her permission. And I think that's one of the things that's so important is to have permission to try to, to, to feel that kind of joy. Absolutely. And I'm just wondering in the absence of that kind of data or feedback, how can people access that information? You sort of, I, I feel like you've said, you know, introspect in, in, you know, in a somatic way, but how can we make that really easy for people, really practical for people to understand how to experiment with that? Well, I think trying these different arts or try like just being in different environments. So for example, by her being in that environment, it triggered these memories. So to what we were saying earlier, this idea of being fearless about um, trying to trigger new parts of yourself that are already there or experimenting with ones that uh, could take you to new places, I think is one thing that you could do. The example we gave of, um, we have also someone else that wrote to us that said he challenged his friends to do a hundred days of different art activities for 30 minutes a day for a hundred days in a row. Wow. Um, and people are discovering new ways to express themselves. And some of it is triggered by memories of things that they loved to do when they were a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they say that, um, I once worked with the Institute for Play, Dr. Stuart Brown, and he says, you know, if you think about when you were happiest playing as a child and really understand that and look at what you're doing today, if you're not doing some version mm-hmm. of it <coughs> interpreted, um, then you're likely not to be as happy as you can be. And I know mm-hmm. what he means because when we're children, there's no judgment. No one has told us how we should be or could be. We're mm-hmm. just, our, our little souls are expressing ourselves. Yeah. And so, you know, what X is to Y, what's that, what's that adult version? Yeah. And if you just strip it down to its essence, and I know I have found that to be true when I look back at what I love to do, which was to create puppet shows uh, oh. that taught people actually took complex ideas like electricity and in a puppet show taught them about it through uh, color and material and theater. And I realized I was, I've been head of design at these various companies with hundreds of creative people. And oh my God, no wonder I like what I do because yeah. that is some of the same I'm uh, same um, things, mechanisms that mm-hmm. I was using, but in, a, in an adult version. So I think just being free to play, to find those things or to think back and activate some of those things. Yeah, I love that. And, and to start with where you are, I think that's also really important. Like in your, you know, you, you get up in the morning, you know, you, you raise to hopefully light what kind of light when you take a shower in the morning you know you have this sensory water hopefully warm that's already activating mm. your your touch receptors in your skin you have four million touch receptors in your skin you know you're you palm in the shower your parasympathetic nervous system already is engaged you're beginning to change your mood like there's so many little things that you can bring into your life um you know the irish mm. poet john O'Donoghue says that art is the essence mm-hmm. of awareness. And I think yeah. it's, I think what we're asking 
people to be is to be more aware of what's already around you. You know, what are the sense, what are the scents that you're using? What are the, what are the spices that you're cooking with? What are you, what are you doing with all of your yeah. different sensory systems? And it just starts to shift your awareness in a way that changes you. Um, and it grows, it grows more and more. Yeah. You know, art is the highest form of meditation. Um, and yeah, that in itself for people that can't, you know, meditate because they say they can't sit there and do nothing. Well, doing an art activity is a form of meditation. Yeah, even just, you know, I think in the book, you mentioned the coloring in of mandalas, you know, that's, you don't even have to draw it out yourself, you can just color it in. And mm -hmm. there's so much evidence of the mindfulness effects of that. Just want to say, Your Brain on Art by Ivy Ross and Susan Magsamen is a must read. It is, it will, it will literally be life-changing for you if you read it. Um, very easy to read, very pragmatic as well, and some and nice illustrations in it. Um, apart from the book, where can people follow your work or find out more about what you do? Well, I guess the easy way would mm -hmm. be to go to um, yourbrainonart.com. There's a website and we have lots of Uh, very interesting articles about other things that are happening. You know, when we wrote this book, at one point, our publisher finally said, you have to yeah. stop because you can't keep putting more. We got to stop. We have a page count. And so uh, I think we were over 10,000 words um, okay. than where we began. But there's lots of great information there. Um, and then uh, you can also go to mm -hmm. uh, the Arts and Mind Lab website and also an organization called the Nora Arts Blueprint. Um, mm -hmm. But Ivy and I are always posting things on social media. And um, we really are really excited about having conversations with folks that are reading the book and hearing about what's working for them. Yeah, we, we invite on the website people to share their stories of where, you know, an arts experience has, has healed them or changed their life. So we love the engagement. So thank you for that invite. So where, which social media are you most active on and what are your handles on, on various social media? Well, Instagram, and it's your brain on art book, okay. um, I, I would think would be the best place. But that and okay. our website. And LinkedIn. Perfect. LinkedIn is really popular. Also, your brain on art. That's, yeah. I think, quite easy to remember. <laughs> Whatever platform you like, just look up your brain on art or your brain on art book. Um, thank you both so much. I know you're so busy and you've got amazing careers and you've just written this book. So thank you so much for taking the time because I feel like this is such an important topic for um, our audience and um, I'm sure it's going to have a really great impact. Well, thank you for creating this creative act <laughs> called a podcast <laughs> and doing the work and doing the work that you do in the world. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Really wonderful. If you have a question or comment for me, please email or send an audio recording of your question to drtara at knox.studio. This has been Reinvent Yourself with Dr. Tara, a Knox Studios podcast. <laughs>